Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, before we get going, just a quick reminder about the Other People app. It's free. It's available now wherever apps are available. Go get the official Other People app. It's free. Once you do that, you'll have in your possession the best way to listen to this podcast. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. It just happens. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. It's very user-friendly. So here's how it works. The most recent 50 episodes of the program available to you for free right when you get the app. The most recent 50 will be there waiting for you free of charge. And then if you want to stream everything, if you want access to all of the episodes, almost 400 episodes and counting, you just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's very cheap. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. Great way to support the program. You can hear my conversations with hundreds of great writers, including Blake Butler, Ron Curry Jr., Steve Ullman, Megan Boyle, Eden Lepucky, Dana Spiata, Roxanne Gay, Ben Marcus, Lauren Groff, Cheryl Strait, Edgar Carrot, Hilton Howes, Emily St. John Mandel. The list goes on. The Other People app, go get it. It's free. Sign up for premium. That's not free, but it's a great deal and a great way to support the show. All right, let's get started. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Hey, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is gently meandering. This is something you can do while completely inert. How's it going out there? What's happening out there? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I'm speaking robotically. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Did I say that already? I can't remember. I'm very tired. But I'm very happy to have Matt Bell back on the program today. This is his second appearance on the Other People podcast. His new novel is called Scrapper. It's available from Soho Press, and it is the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Yes, indeed. So uh, for those of you who are unaware, quickly, TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It's my literary site, TheNervousBreakdown.com. It has its own book club. You can sign up for that over at TheNervousBreakdown.com. Just click on Book Club in the menu bar. Today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Hey, do you need some new earbuds? Hey, do you need some new headphones? Go to TweakedAudio.com, enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Enter that promo code, get 33% off of any purchase. 
at tweakedaudio.com. So I'm in a bit of a hurry. I have to go uh, meet some friends for dinner. I'm going to have some uh, Ethiopian food in Little Ethiopia with some friends of mine from uh, college who were in town for a week. So it's Ethiopian food. You eat it with your fingers using uh, the little spongy bread. Have you done this before? I think it's called injera bread. Am I remembering that? Injera? 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 It's kind of like a tortilla, but it's uh, bread, and it's spongy. And you use the bread, the spongy bread, to pick up the messy food, if that makes sense. You guys have done this before. What am I, why am I explaining this? You've eaten Ethiopian food, correct? I don't know. I don't know how common it is. But uh, these friends of mine, who I have known for uh, more than 20 years, we used to eat Ethiopian food together on a semi-regular you know, semi basis back when I lived in Colorado. That was like a thing we did. There was an Ethiopian restaurant in town we used to go to in uh, Boulder. And uh, these friends of mine, they're you know married couple. They're very culturally sophisticated people. They're both artists. Very culturally uh, sophisticated and in the know. And uh, it applies to food as well. They've been in Los Angeles this week. And uh, does this ever happen to you when people you know come to your town, they come to your city, and they do more in a week than you've done in five years? That ever happen? And you, and you feel ashamed by how much your friends have done in a week? Makes me realize how bad I am about like formal cultural outings, like to museums, things to do. Like this, you know, like how NPR tells you what to do, like five things to do. I never do any of them. LA Weekly, 10 things to do. I tend to resist that stuff. I don't know what it is. And, and don't get me wrong. I like to be out and about. I'm not a shut-in. I'm not agoraphobic yet. I'm working on it, but I'm not there yet. And, uh, you know, it's the same when I travel. I don't want to go to MoMA. Oh, you should go to MoMA. See such and such exhibit. No. You know why? Because everyone's going to go. I don't want to go where everyone goes. There's going to be lines. It's going to be a mob scene. It's going to be hectic. I'm going to have to wait. I'm going to have to deal with things. People. Well, let's just go to Starbucks, okay? Let's just get a Starbucks. <laughs> let's get a Starbucks and reassess. I'm not that bad. I hope I'm not that bad. But you know what I mean. I'm making a larger point. I just want to get a Starbucks. <laughs> Should we just get a Starbucks? You know, and uh, it's like you're traveling, right? And then you go and you're in that uh, moment. You're like, let's just get a Starbucks. And then you get a Starbucks and then you have to go to the bathroom because you have like a quadruple espresso or some massive caffeinated beverage. And then you're like, oh, you know, let's go back to the hotel. It's a Starbucks. I'm sorry. I just... Or else you're so far away from the hotel by that point because you're out wandering around and you go get the Starbucks and then you're like, uh, let's just go to the museum because the museum has good bathrooms. And Starbucks, by the way, any coffee shop, terrible bathrooms, period, full stop, as a general rule. It's like a train spotting bathroom, my local Starbucks. It's disgusting. Bunch of people drinking coffee all day. It's just disgusting. Coffee's disgusting. I'm sorry. I have this argument with people. 
I drink it. Don't get me wrong. I drink it for the drug. Espresso. But I don't want large quantities of... I don't want large volume of beverage. I just want shots. But I much prefer uh, tea. Coffee's just... Ugh. The fuck is it? People are going to protest over that, but it's how I feel. Let's just get a Starbucks... And then uh, uh, let's just go to the museum. Use the bathroom at the museum. That's why you go to the museum. You go to the museum to use the bathroom. Marcel Duchamp knew what he was talking about. Nobody got it. Nobody understood. That's some real insight right there, people. Are you aware of what I'm talking about? The Duchamp, uh, what was it, a urinal? What am I talking about? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature... I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Matt Bell. His new novel is called Scrapper. It's available now from Soho Press. And uh, it is garnering rave reviews, and it is the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club. Uh, Very pleased to have Matt Bell back on the program. Very pleased to get to shine a light on Scrapper. Here he is, folks. This is Matt Bell. And so that's been really good. It's been nice sort of explore new things. I lived in Michigan my whole life until now, so everything feels very... That's an aesthetic sort of shift. Yeah. A significant aesthetic right. shift. When I flew out for my job interview, it was negative uh, 30 in Marquette, and it was 80 degrees when I got to, to Tempe. You're like, I'll take it. Right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of felt like human beings shouldn't go anywhere where they're like 110 degree yeah. difference in one yeah, day. Yeah, that's a lot yeah. of difference. Right, yeah. It's good. Holy shit, that's a 110 degree difference. Right. For real. Right. Yeah. Well, it doesn't sound possible, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, you got a new book out. Yeah. It's set in Michigan. It's set in Michigan. Now that you're like exiled from Michigan, self-imposed exile, right. are you going to continue to write books set in Michigan? Is this like a Joycean thing where you, your imagination? Right. <laughs> I think uh, maybe. I think the I'm working on something new and just getting into it, and it's at least partially set in Michigan. So... Um, We'll see. I think it, that was starting to happen anyway, because obviously, you know, I wrote most of Scrapper while I lived in, in Marquette in northern Michigan. Um, so I really only did the final draft from Phoenix. Uh, but there's that weird thing where wherever you are when the book comes out, it feels like the place you did all the work, like, yeah, as yeah. if you like did it that day. Right. Um, right. Um, when In the House came out, there, there were reviews and interviews. People were asking me about like writing this like book that takes place in the woods while I lived in the woods. I'm like, well... Like, I don't live in the woods. And also, I didn't when I wrote it. Like, I lived in, like, a downtown Ann Arbor, right? Right. So, uh, so it's a weird thing, I think, that 
that uh, juxtaposition always feels kind of odd. Okay, so Detroit. Yeah. Do you live in Detroit? I did not. No, I grew up in Michigan, uh, about two hours north of Detroit, in a small town uh, named Hemlock between Saginaw and Midlands, so two other sort of smaller industrial cities. Okay, but I mean, like the industrial blight that has unfolded yeah. across Michigan, and I think concentrated mm-hmm. most uh, acutely in Detroit. Right. You know, I haven't seen it. I haven't laid eyes mm-hmm. on it. But, you know, I mean, except uh, on television. Right. It's something else. It's pretty intense. You know, I think I, uh, the metal scrapping was sort of my entry into the book. That's where I started with so the illegal metal scrapping. Um, when I started the book in 2012, the count was something like 100,000 abandoned buildings in, like, Detroit proper. Um, They're just giving away houses in Detroit. They are right? giving away houses, Yeah. Uh, I just actually came from an event for an organization called Write a House that literally is giving away houses to, to writers. Okay, that's um, what I read about. So yeah. If so you're was, a writer, you can have a house. Yeah. Well, you, you know, it's a little more complicated than that, but okay. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I want it to be simple. <laughs> right. Just go get a key. Just go get a key. Um, no, but it's really interesting. And I, I think it's a really difficult problem. The scale of it is so much bigger than anywhere else. I mean, a lot of cities have a version of this, right? Um, but yeah, it's really New Orleans after Katrina, I think had that same thing. And I think it's tough because you have, uh, I think, uh, you know, entire populations of people socioeconomically who have to move out. Right. Uh, so you lose certain things about Mm -hmm. a city culturally when that happens. But then I guess the flip side or the optimistic side of the equation is that you have an opportunity to reinvent, right. To rethink urban planning, you know, that you wouldn't otherwise have been able to do. I mean, do you feel like Detroit is doing anything creatively to kind of reassess itself and maybe reinvent itself? I mean, I think that, I mean, there's no, that's the question. I think there's a lot of good things happening in Detroit, but I think. Not to make you like the mayor of Detroit. No, no, I know. It's like the weird way, I, like I wrote a book about urban blight and I, I don't have any solutions, which is why I wrote a book about it. Um, but I, I think there are a lot of people doing good things. I think there always have been. I think the, the major problem is that. You know, at one point Detroit had a million and a half, like 1.7 million people, was on pace to be a two million person city. It was like the third or fourth largest city in the yeah. country, or even maybe even higher at a certain point in the yeah. And I'm not history. sure exactly where it peaked now, but it uh, now it has like 700,000. Um, it's the only city in America ever to go above a million and come back down. Uh, and so you have this infrastructure for a million more people than live there, and that's just really difficult. So you have things are spaced out and people are spaced out. And trying to provide sort of services and, and even to build communities and have businesses that work when people are that spread out is, I think, tricky. And um, and we'll see. But I think there, it's going to – it's not going to be what it was. It's not going to be a two-million-person city. I don't think that's the future of Detroit. But it's going to be something else. Not for a long time. Good. Yeah, probably, you know. Because it's not going to be that industrial base. is never going to be there. Like, that's not – no one's going to open – huge auto plants in Detroit again. Like, it's just not, I don't think, I mean, I'd be surprised. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, American manufacturing isn't doing that. So, um, so I don't know. I don't know what the, the solutions will be, but it will look different. And I think that's part of the tension. Like, what will that difference be? You know, if it, it's not going to be a restoration or return to like some former glory days. It's going to be this different thing. And, and the did old it, days did were it complicated. Had, so, yeah, but the know. old days were complicated. This is the question that I always have when it comes to this stuff because it calls to mind like the movie Roger and Me. Yeah. Uh, Michael Moore was talking about this stuff, what, 25 years right. ago. And it wasn't necessarily as uh, manifested, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, the complete uh, hollowing out of Detroit right. hadn't fully manifested, but he was talking about it and it seems prescient. Um, but you say, you know, the old days, it's easy to kind of uh, idealize them. Uh, did, you know, did it have to happen? I don't know the answer to that. Like was, was, think... Were the forces of change 
beyond the control of anybody? Like, were the economic forces that were brought to bear the result of bad public policy and greedy people? Or is it just, like, natural evolution of how business goes? Or, I mean, I guess yeah. that's a big question. But Sure. I think there's, I mean, maybe some of all of those things. I think there's, um, there's a, a racial aspect to it. I think, you know, you have, have white flight from the city after the, the riots in the 60s. You have the auto industry basically picked up their headquarters and moved them out of the city into Oakland County. So they're right next door. You can take all that tax money and you just move it into the suburbs. You can take it out of the city. Um, the, obviously, the plant's closing changes the job landscape there dramatically. You close the plants and leave all the pollution in the, the buildings and the, you know. Um, yeah, at least clean up after yourself. Yeah, and that's not really how American just, business works ever. So, yeah. Fuck I, mean, it. I think there are people doing some stuff there now. I think maybe. I might get it wrong. I remember hearing this story when I was researching, but like Ford is is building or planting crops in places that one of its factors was the slow different crops <laughs> leach different. You eat they them leach, first. You eat them first. Well, no one's eating them, I think, but they're oh. leaching different chemicals out of the ground. Good. So they're planting different things <laughs> that will over time restore that. Um, no, I don't mean to laugh. It just it just sounds. Uh, I know. I know. Bleak. It's, it's it. You know, I think that is. It is. You know, if you built an auto plant in the '40s or '50s, like the environmental stuff was just. I mean, I don't know if it's good now, but it definitely wasn't then. You know, it's, it's better. Yeah, yeah, right. It's better. So, um, so yeah. So I think some of those places are are difficult. It's crazy how you have uh, vested economic interest, and then you have collective human interest, and you know you see how those two things working at odds with each other can create a whole mess yeah of the world yeah yeah (laughs) you know like you just it comes down to to me it seems like the core of it i mean i asked the question earlier i I guess i i tend to lean towards greed Mm -hmm. being the big problem yeah you know it's it's just people wanting to squeeze as much money as they can out of something with and, and like to pollute right because it's more profitable yeah, I mean, it's really that same thing where Walmart builds a store with these, like, enormous tax breaks and, like, kills all the small business in town. And then as soon as those tax breaks expire, like, move right outside the town borders. Yeah. And everybody has to go there because they killed everything else. Yeah. And they can and also that, drive... Incredible in- cynicism of, like, choosing to do that over and over again, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. just like, I, you know, I, 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 I think that people who run businesses, I guess it's just a type... You know, sure. what did, what did, uh, what's the Christian thing? It's like harder to go take a camel through the eye of a needle sure, than for yeah, a rich yeah, man yeah. to get to, you know, the, right? the promised land. Like yeah. you almost, I, I sometimes can wonder like in order to be super wealthy and business successful, especially in like industry or right, something, right. can you be a decent person and succeed at that yeah, level? I don't know the answer to that. I don't think it's a problem. I'm, I'm not being tested in that way in my life. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> You're like, I just teach right. theirs. Right, right, right. And you know, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, but I, you're right. I mean, it gets incredibly complicated, especially at that scale. I think when you're doing these huge multinational companies with these enormous, the numbers aren't even real, right? And even like the numbers are, you know, I've, you see your employees and you have an idea about them, but at some point you're building stuff all over the world. You're doing interface. It's like, it's like things. toy soldiers. Yeah, right. It's a game. Like you can't even, there's, I, I can't imagine being able to concretely think about those things. Right. Like too much. My daily life too much feels abstract and hard for me to understand, much less when I'm doing that. You like, know? I, got, I got 30 students I can't keep track yeah. of. Yeah. Well, I think you can fall into that teaching, right? Where, like, remembering that all the students in your class are, like, 
individual, fully agented, complex people is sometimes hard to do when you're talking about teaching in the abstract, right? People are like students today or something, you know? And it's like, I think you have everybody as this individual that you have um, a relationship with is, a, is different. And my classes are small, which makes it easier, but I, I think about people who teach those like five, 600 person classes and like, oh my God. those aren't individuals. See, they can't be. No. Some of them, but not, there's no way. There'd be students who you could teach five times in the course of their career and you'd never meet them, you know? Right. Um, and you think about having 50,000 employees and like, it's just, it's abstract. So it's we're, okay. to feel that. So we're like these kinds of uh, abstract thoughts and, you know, uh, economic concerns or political concerns or whatever, were these kinds of things undergirding uh, your creative process when you were writing the novel? Did they inform it? Was this, was this what was on your mind as you sort of came up with the idea for it? I think at some point, I mean, it really started with the, with the landscape and with uh, this action of sort of metal scrapping and trying to find, um, kind of find the character that way. I, I think the first month or two I was working on the book, I don't think, uh, Kelly, the protagonist, I don't think he had a name yet, right? There was just like this, I think he might have just been called like the scrapper, but like this guy. Um, and so the theme sort of emerged from that as I was going. I mean, I knew I was interested in some of that stuff, but, uh, but I mean, you know, the novel will only hold what can be filtered through the character, right? They'll only hold what the character is interested in to some extent. Um, so, so I think that changed. I, I do think some of the, the language choices had to do with that. Um, Kelly calls the part of the city that he's working in, he calls it the zone, um, which has one effect of just making it seem strange, but it's also sort of an allusion to the, uh, the exclusion zone around Chernobyl in, in the Ukraine where that nuclear disaster was. And, there was. and that was something I decided really early on. I had that probably within a week or two of working in the book. And it was something for me, trying to tie those things together a little bit, that what happened at Chernobyl and the abandonment of Pripyat and the sort of nuclear disaster there feels, at least in, by one way of thinking, like a, like an endpoint or a, or a consequence of taking like Soviet communism like all the way, you know? And it seems to me the, the sort of corporate and political sort of abandonment of Detroit... Um, I'd make an argument that that and and what happened in New Orleans after or after Katrina seem like similar kinds of warnings about American politics. No, that makes sense economics. to me. Yeah. Makes, in, in fact, so uh, that was on my mind in that that sort of big way that the book never says that, right? But it's like built into its DNA. It's an interesting parallel, but yeah. I, you know, I wouldn't immediately draw a parallel between Chernobyl and uh, Detroit right, or New sure. Orleans, but I, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Chernobyl, did you see in the news the other day that like, is it called the zone around the, uh, the exclusion zone? The yeah, exclusion yeah. zone. Apparently the exclusion zone is just uh, bursting with wildlife. Yeah, I'm not surprised, right? right. You know, like, not, no human no intrusion. Humans, yeah. <laughs> there's like there's like wild boars running around, yeah. and so it's kind of it's you know it's regenerating itself. Absolutely. And, but the, I've seen videos and uh, I've seen you know photojournalism uh, of that zone, and it's pretty grim. Yeah. I mean, you just see all the abandoned. You know, there's like kid shoes, and right. Whatever it right. is, you know, it's just. Well, it was abandoned over like overnight, right? Yeah. People were just forced from their homes and didn't know why they were being being moved out and I think it was a really I mean one of the one of the things that came up as I was writing the book is there's um, I started reading a lot of stuff about Chernobyl as I was writing about the sort of abandoned part of Detroit not because I was trying to like tie them too tightly but because there's a lot of um, really good history about Chernobyl because it was so fast um, there's a book called Voices from Chernobyl um, I'm, I'm gonna forget the woman who who wrote the book in Russian but she uh translated by Keith Gesson into English, uh, which is an oral history of the Chernobyl disaster. And like people are not understanding why they're leaving their homes and not wanting to and 
wanting to be able to live in this place, even though it was no longer possible to live there. And that was really helpful. And if there's a similar big document like that about Detroit, I don't know it. But it was uh, a document of a fast version of what maybe happened to parts of Detroit at a much slower, like decades long pace. And there was something really interesting about that and working with yeah, that. It's like, like thematic resonances. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you find people saying really similar things in, in both places and having similar ideas about their houses they've lost. Um, when I was starting working on the book, I uh, initially there was a lot more stuff sort of about the housing collapse in 2008 and 2009. And, uh, I was starting the process of buying my first house at the same time. And so like, yeah, we are weird personal anxieties are filtering really directly. And I found this, uh, message board thread that had been going basically since the, the bubble collapse. It had been going for four or five years at that point. And it's tens of thousands of messages long of people who had lost their houses or been forced out of their houses and, um, houses they build, houses they've worked their whole lives for, um, houses they started their families in and this like incredible emotional investment in those houses they no longer had, or people who um, destroyed their house in some way rather than let somebody else have their dream house. Or, but I mean, the the sort of like anger and anxiety on that message board was like maybe the most dramatic thing I've read like in the last like five years, Dear right? Like, well, you know, but it makes for me, obvious reasons. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. it's amazing how much meaning uh, can uh, like you know uh, uh, how much meaning can be held by an object. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely, especially yeah. somebody's home. I mean, those are entire narratives in right. a single home. You know, countless stories are contained, and I think that's yeah. sort of what you're getting at in your right. book. You know, yeah. the abandonment of the city. It's like it holds a lot of ghosts. Mm-hmm. You know, all those empty shells. Yeah, stuff happened in there. Absolutely, it can be freaky too when you look at like mid-century uh, footage, like newsreel footage right, or whatever. Right. Of uh, I mean, it used to be Boomtown. Oh, absolutely. I yeah. mean, it was the it was the American dream writ large. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's it's like the it's the city of the twentieth century built, right? You know, like it it was it grew so fast in a really short period of time, and and it grew very modern because of that, right? It's sort of its boom time wasn't a hundred years before like other cities. Um, this was really interesting, and I think the all of the signs that are still there, and some of that stuff is still, of course, active, but it's it's really interesting to think about. Um, what that city, what the city would look like if it if it had continued to grow unchecked, but like that's not. I mean, you know, I mean that's the that's the same thing that underpins the like retirement problems we're having now, our pension problems. Like a pension plan works as long as the company makes more money and has more employees every day, forever, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's like no pressure, right? Right, and of course, like that was never going to happen. Like you can't set up a program like that, and you shouldn't yeah. set up a city that way, right? But yeah. um. But yeah, I mean, just incredible, incredible growth. And in a really short period of time, like four decades, it just went from a couple hundred thousand people to like 1.5 million, you know, which is hard to, I don't know if anything will ever grow like that again in the same, well, Phoenix did, I guess. But well, like, they say, know, I mean, that's the thing about the it way. is the American economy, mid 20th century to 1980-ish was an incredibly... Uh, huge boom historically yeah hard to repeat right the baby boomers rode like a great wave yeah and you think back to like my parents could support my dad could support a family right one guy just yeah. out of college yeah. buy a house right like, who does that anymore sure you yeah, know, it's yeah, a very, yeah you have to have a very rare situation and uh things have just shifted so much and um you know i think about that stuff i also think further back uh to just like the industrial revolution you know thinking more broadly mm-hmm. and you know, I'm sure this exists and I just don't know about it, but like, I want to know more about who was resisting 
the big changes of the industrial right, revolution right. at its dawn. Yeah. Like who was sounding the who like who was the canary in the coal mine? Like sure, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. Like, pun intended. You right, know what I'm right, saying? Right. Like, who was saying to themselves, you know what, this uh this seems bad. There's a lot of black smoke going up into the sky mm-hmm. and like uh, you know, I know we're making great progress and like there's like steam trains now and like we can, you know, uh, you know, use a machine to like uh, pulverize concrete or right, whatever it is. Right. But um, what are the consequences going to be? We got to slow down. I know we're all making money, but what are we? Right. What's going to what's this going to look like in 100 years? I mean, that's the. The I mean, I don't even know what era it is, but like the Luddites are like one of those movements. Right. You know, what I mean? I'm sure there's always people like that. It's always interesting to go back and sort of there's always a person who warned that warned of everything. There's always a person who saw it. And we just don't we don't want to hear it. I mean, no one wants to hear it. I think, uh, you know, one of the things I've, as I was writing about this, I also researched a lot of there's this whole thing about other abandoned towns at one point. And it just didn't end up being part of the book. But I read about a lot of them and these sort of mining towns where the town was like completely like polluted and the water was bad and the ground's bad and no one should live there. And the air was bad. Yeah. Everything and, was bad. Know, <laughs> um, and no, and just, you know, the, the time between people knowing that and the people leaving is this enormous amount of time because there's still jobs and there's still these things. People live there. And of course, all those towns still have people living in them, right? Like yeah. somebody does. Somebody. You know? yeah, yeah. People hang on. Oh yeah. They don't want to leave their houses. You That's know? right. They don't want to leave their, ho- and they don't want to leave their home. I know. That's like their really hometown. Yeah, like they absolutely. have a connection to that land and, yeah. you know, I read about people in the Central Valley in California with this drought that are just living in place. There's not even any water. Right, right. They don't want to. They don't want to go. Yeah. And I don't. You know, I don't blame them 100. percent But it's like, what are you going to do? This is unsustainable. Well, and I think they they sense probably correctly that if everybody abandoned those places, a place is polluted. What are you going to do with it? But like, if, if Detroit, we took everybody out of Detroit, someone would come in, buy up all the land, develop it, and it would be this different thing. It's the it's the the way it's inhabited now keeps that from happening. Um, but so you know that if you were to give up your neighborhood, it would become somebody else's neighborhood in this. And all the stuff that your neighborhood could have used will be there and you won't live there. And it will be priced out of your, you know. It's amazing. We absolutely know that. It's amazing the churn that happens just as a natural function of uh, time. Right. In a neighborhood, in a town, in a city. Uh, I go back to see the place where my grandparents lived and that I used to visit when yeah. I was a kid. Completely different. Right. I haven't been back to my childhood home in Milwaukee in uh, 20 years. Mm-hmm. More than 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure that looks... Right. And, and when I went back 20 years ago, I hadn't lived there for a decade. Yeah, it, yeah, looked, yeah. it looked like 100% different. It right. was you know, filled with people that... Um, you know, the whole thing seemed different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just goes on. And the stories just accumulate. Sure, yeah. I guess absolutely. that's the way the world works. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think that's, I mean, it's more obvious in a city like New York or something. And I'm sure LA too, you know, where um, a vacancy is immediately filled by something else. You know, like, um, I, you know, I, I haven't spent a ton of time in New York. You know, I'm there for four or five days at a time, maybe once a year. And every time I go back, I, you know, there's certain places I go and it's like, well, that wasn't there before. That wasn't there. You know, it's just, but it, but it's a city where things are always going to be replaced. The last thing that was there isn't going to be the thing forever. Well, you know? but I mean, yeah, New York. Talk about a place that's changed sure, so much over course. the past thirty yeah, years. Yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I don't think New York's in a good phase, from what I hear from people. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, look, it's a great 
city of the world and like it's be- wonderful to go to you mean like in just so like everything's really expensive and everything's, everything's sort of, really expensive yeah, yeah. like ev- like normal people have been priced out it's sort of like a, a theme park for the rich like i think there's a lot of truth to those sentiments sure. and i think that's like the truth on the ground you know and like you can't live there unless you have a lot of money or you're packed like four to a right, studio right, apartment right. or whatever it is or you're you got some sort of rent control yeah. thing i've never sort of understood in, in cities like that or like san francisco now so the tech boom and stuff like how people who have like minimum wage jobs like how far are they traveling to be like in downtown Manhattan to work this job? Yeah. Like, I, just, I don't really, I just don't know enough about it. It's not outside of my world, but I'm always like, how does this work? You know, it doesn't. You're right. I know increasingly. I know. And it's really unhealthy. I think for the culture. Yeah, probably uh, for the, I'm the, certainly certain just to live in like the, the cities themselves. I think like the spirit of them or like what's, you know, the, the, whatever it is that, uh, keeps a place vital, you know, erodes yeah. when, you know, things get tilted that dramatically in right. the direction of the haves. Yeah. How long um, have you been in L.A.? I've been in L.A. for 15 years. Okay, yeah, you've been here a good time. Yeah, in L.A., I mean, it's got its problems and it's got its inequities, um, but I feel like it's big enough and sprawling enough and varied enough. I mean, there's enough land still right. that right. I think people can still find a way to get by relatively cheaply, Sure. Uh, depending on where you live mm-hmm. and how you do things and... Um, there's a lot of places to live in LA. There's right. a lot. I mean, the, the Los Angeles County is the size of Connecticut. Sure, yeah, it's huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's compared to Manhattan, right? You know, right. Which is a lot. Uh, you know, real estate's a lot more hard to come by or whatever. But um, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that it'll last forever that right. way. And um, you know, I think that the politics here, uh, urban planning. I, I'm, you know, I think good things have been happening. There's good. just a major homeless uh, homelessness is a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just announced the city council just voted a hundred million dollars in, um, in funding to help combat that. Great. Yeah. That's, that's not, that's a nice chunk of change. That's a nice chunk yeah, of change. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, there's that, there's environmental things I like. There's a lot that I'm proud of, like from a civic perspective mm-hmm. about Los Angeles. I think it's got in a general way, it's eye on the ball. You yeah. know, there's always going to be things you wish could be done better, but I think generally speaking, it's headed in the right direction mm-hmm. environmentally. Um, like the great tragedy of Los Angeles, I think is, that, and I always say this is that, um, there was just no, why there's no wisdom when it came to civic planning. Sure. The right. way that the city is laid out <laughs> and organized is a fucking mess. Right. Right. And and it's this, this land, this parcel of land on the ocean, beautiful weather. Mm-hmm. If this place was, if there was, there, there should be a giant green belt, like a central right, park that stretches right. from the coast all the way downtown. It could be like a, and people could ride their bikes. Right, and could right. Be tre- I mean, it could be the best city in the world. Yeah. You know, it's still one of the world's, you know, better cities, I would argue. But, um, you know, you just wish like, oh, there should be more park space. Sure. There should be more public spaces. Uh, I feel like older cities in Europe uh, tend to have like a smarter layout maybe because they were pre-industrial mm-hmm. you know in terms of like public space right you know you go to these cities and you really feel like a sense of order yeah and uh you go into these like big squares in like spain or mm-hmm. what you know what i'm saying like those mm-hmm. kinds of places that make you feel like you're somewhere right and new york has some of that oh absolutely you know but it's probably the sprawl right like when things are growing in that particular way like nobody's doing that stuff. You're just throwing up yeah. houses, Here's a warehouse. strip malls, and warehouses. Yeah, it's Fucking, unreal. There should be yeah. yeah, there should be laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> against that. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, it's not cheap. Yeah, it's not cheap to do things that way. It's more expensive to do. That's why, like, the joke that I always tell is that, like, you know what, a dictator can be a good thing for a city's, uh, you know, c- civic uh, institutions and the way that it's laid out if the dictator has good taste. Napoleon. <laughs> 
big Napoleon. He, you right. know, for all of his ills, the dude knew how to build a city. Sure. You know, he knew how to build monuments to himself, and, and uh, we're all the richer for it. It's a weird, like, irony. Well, I think, you know, I mean, none of this is going to happen as long as we're in a, you can't, um, you can't have taxes for anything, and you can't have, you know, I mean, like, stuff that just costs money, you know, public, things that belong to the public are expensive. And, you know, if people don't want to pay for that stuff, they're not going to have them. You know, get a strip mall instead, you know? Football stadium. Yeah, right. Absolutely. We don't you pay for that, too, and you can't go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can't afford that $200 right. tickets. Yeah, it's unreal. Um, wow. So all these things exist at the heart of Scrapper. Yeah. One way or somewhere. another. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really is interesting. I think one of the reasons to, to write this book was I was aware, finishing the last book, that um, because it had that sort of more mythic sort of setup, it didn't have a lot of – there was no way in some ways to accommodate, like, directly um, some of the things I was interested in politically or culturally. It just didn't – it just doesn't work that way. It's a different kind of book. And that's fine. But uh, I knew I wanted to sort of move in this direction. Um, and uh, it's interesting to then again find how little you can talk about in a book or how little you can do. You know, the novel only holds so much. I mean, it holds a lot. But also because it all gets filtered through character and through story – um, you know, which is good. That's why I have to write another book, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I got it all in, I'd be done. So that's uh, it's a good thing. Well, and it can be, I mean, sometimes I, th- I think like you can do things with, um, I don't know, trying to cram too much in. Yeah. Where you start to puppet your characters a little too much. Right. And it can feel like the, uh, you know, you can see the puppeteer. Yeah, absolutely. It's and like, you don't want human beings to be allegories for things or representatives of this. So this is the character who represents this experience or something. It or suddenly you... a character is just like soapboxing your political views. Yeah, you know? absolutely. <laughs> like, like one giant block paragraph you know, right, that spans right. like five pages. Sure. Like, you got to get rid of that stuff. Yeah, it's a good thing I'm not a very good dialogue writer. So no one ever gets to give a speech. <laughs> it removes the temptation, you know. So uh, do you ever get depressed writing this book? Because I mean, you're dealing with difficult stuff. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself getting bogged down like... Am I sending out into the world just like a little box of black light? Like, what? Do, how do I? Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think so. I think in some ways, um, one of the the big things the book's about to me is sort of the relationship between sort of fear and violence, and and so there's a and so there's a lot of both of those things in the book, um, and uh, and I had a hard time with it. I had a hard time writing it. I had a hard time thinking about it at great length. Um, Especially toward the maybe the end at the end of every draft, I work. I just work more. Like I'm, I'm close to something. And I start working a lot. And at the end of the sort of final draft, where I turned it into my editor, I was working six, eight, ten hour days, like six days a week, and this really heavy material. And it was difficult. Um, and the book is bleak in certain ways. There's uh, one reviewer I think uh, took time to like note that the book has maybe like one joke. Which I think is maybe undercutting it a little, <laughs> but um, but there's maybe five, right? Um, like it's a pretty serious book, and uh, and I know that. Um, Are you a serious guy? I don't know, not all the time in person. I wish I was funnier on the page. I, I think I'm probably funnier in person than I am as a writer for sure. Um, but I uh, but so the material is really heavy. But I don't think I don't think it's hopeless, and I don't think I think the impetus to write something like this or to write about these things is is a hopeful gesture, right? It's the belief that things could be better than they are or else you wouldn't bother. It's not meant to glorify it. It's not meant to, um, not meant to be, to be rune porn in the, in the worst way. Um, but, uh, but maybe, uh, trying to bear witness, uh, trying to call attention to, um, yeah. And so I think that that's more the mode of the book for me. So it's a difficult thing to write about, but the reason to do it 
is hopefully a hopeful gesture. Yeah. I hope, so I hope that's what a reader comes away with, not this is a hopeless world that can't be saved, or these are hopeless characters, but that these are, a lot of the book is sort of obsessed with like what it means to be a good person in a difficult situation. And that I hope that question is, the answer to that is a hopeful thing, even if the book is difficult, if that makes sense. No, I get yeah. it. Have you been back to Michigan yet for the, with this tour? I have, yeah. I was in Michigan last week for a couple of days, and I was there two weeks ago. So, um, so yeah, and that's been good. What's it's, the reception like there? I think the reception's been good in Michigan. You're always nervous about that kind of thing, right? Um, the, there's been this interesting split where if a reviewer and interviewer is from Michigan, they tend to take the book really like at face value, like um, treat it as like a realist book. And and you know a review just came out in in the millions. It was sort of like talking about like this is a part of Detroit people don't write about. And I, that's great. I love to hear that. And interviewers from other places have called the book a science fiction novel and a dystopian novel. And I would call it. I would call. Novel. I was. I was gonna. It was on my brain when I was thinking about it. Like science yeah. fiction, dystopian. Yeah. Set in totally, the not too distant future. Yeah. Right. And there's always this like not in, in a near future thing, which is really interesting to me. And there's something really fascinating about that. That sort of so, I think there's. I worry that you would. Go, I would go back to Michigan and I would get this, um, like a negative reaction that I was focusing too much on the negative thing, or I was, or I was inflating or, or conflating or some way. People can get defensive about their hometown too if it's portrayed in a way that feels darker. Right. You know? But I've had the complete opposite reaction from people in Michigan, which has been people have wanted to talk about these ideas. People have wanted to talk about the the place. Um, people have recognized the real places I, I wrote about. Um, and felt felt that at least the the physical description of it was honest. So it's been interesting, sort of that uh, maybe I was really worried about that, and at least talking face to face, that has been less the the problem. Yeah, yeah. Are you apocalyptic? Do you have an apocalyptic worldview? I don't know. I mean, I I think I. Um, How is the world going to end, Matt? Right, right. <laughs> I don't think things get unbroken very easily, you know. And I think like that's so that I feel that. Um, I think uh, if I could do it without depressing the hell of myself, I'd probably try to write a climate change book. It seems to be the thing we should be talking about all the time. And everything else is that too, but um, I don't know. I, I don't think that, I mean, I'm not religiously apocalyptic or something, and I don't think... You're religious at all? Uh, not anymore. Yeah, I was, but not anymore. You were when? Uh, up through like high school, late high school, yeah. And then what happened? Uh, I stopped. Uh, no, I think I... Um, <laughs> Uh, for me, I, I was very, I was a, raised Catholic and was a pretty devout Catholic and was pretty, pretty into it. And did I, we talk uh, about this the first time we talked? We did, yeah, I okay. think so, yeah. Um, but repeat, just what, like you just sure, yeah. Late high school just broke it off. Yeah, I think I was, you know, reading a lot about it and sort of studying a lot about it and trying to sort of um, uh, come to some understanding or to know more about it. And I think I just sort of like read myself out, you know, I sort of like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, got into like the history and the sort of you know the other things around it and I was just sort of uh, yeah I think I just sort of came out the other side um, and uh, and that's fine so I think that that's you get into the Pope is. the Pope are you into this Pope uh, you know the Pope's obviously like uh, an interesting figure but um, 
I think it's it's probably worth remembering all the things the Pope's not for that we would probably be for. See, right? I've been on There's this Pope. Like, I was on a Pope roller coaster. I yeah. get real excited about him because he's like uh, climate change. You know, is right. a real thing. I get very you know the things sure. that he agrees with me on. Right. I can find myself. Oh, it's like, so nice to hear that coming from that direction at all. Yeah, which yeah. is good. It may be helpful. No, yeah. So like I'm like happy clapping, listening to him say this right. stuff, and then it sort of glosses over the fact that like oh you know he thinks that gay people shouldn't be allowed to be married right. and that women you know, shouldn't uh, be able to be priests. And like, there's all these things that really bother me. Right. And like the thing too, uh, that I've been thinking about lately, they, there's a priest that just came out. Mm-hmm. So I'm a gay man. Yeah. They fired him immediately. They excommunicated. Right. I just saw that too. That, I, that's all I saw of it. But that I drives that, me yeah. crazy yeah. because like, I, I feel like Francis has to know that like a good percentage of priests in the Vatican living in Vatican city, sure. just as the, a microcosm right. of the priesthood are closeted. It must be like, it's so yes. intellectually dishonest, even just percentage wise of like, uh, any population there must yeah, be right yeah. so but, like, I mean, without the, priest, but being... the priesthood much like the republican party places that condemn sure. are natural homes for people who are trying to hide out Absolutely. because you hide yeah. in plain sight why would you know why would yeah. i be a priest if i were gay and like all that kind of stuff or i think the like, big thing for me with him is sort of the don't don't talk about how we should take care of the poor and do some income inequality and this sort of thing and then be against um like contraception which is like yeah. one of the vehicles oh my God. to economic Right. prosperity and certainly enables people to control their destiny and control their life it's like those, those are completely incompatible beliefs you can't be everybody should have a chance and we should get rid of income inequality and then also think like but no one should be able, but have right. 15 children in right. guatemala yeah. and so right i mean and just the way that it allows women to to control their sort of body and control which allows them to control the rest of their life you know i mean like those are you can't have both of those things. So I think it's worth like and again like at some point could we just listen to the like why do we need a why do we need a religious figure to tell us climate change is important? Can't we just be like <laughs> every scientist ever? I think for like, me can we just listen to them. Yeah, you know? exactly. Right. Well, no, but like, I think for me, like, for me. I'm, the, the reason like I think everyone's cheerleading him so hard is that it's like maybe the people who. Um, yeah, Deny no, I agree. It. Absolutely. Might be like, well, maybe he's got a point. Or, no, and I think that's know. good. And it's okay when things are sort of... Ha- we don't... People don't have to go all the way in one step, right? And we don't... You know, whatever my political beliefs is, they've changed. They didn't... It, you don't go from here to here all at once. I think the... What in the small town I grew up in would have probably been really progressive ideas about, like, um, gay marriage or LB, LGBT rights would now be, like, horribly offensive, right? Like, you know, sort of the 1995 version of being progressive in like small town Michigan sure, yeah. is not great now right no, I remember personally I mean this is like something I'm not terribly uh, yeah. fond of about myself but I remember like 15 years ago being like well yeah you could just do like civil unions because like the married people who were all confer- I was like you could I didn't see the right I didn't see the problem with that right in a way that I should have yeah I think me too I think that's absolutely absolutely it and so sometimes you know we go home and you have like a like an older relative or something who's, you know, telling sort of like a weird, not particularly PC story about like they're like a, like a gay guy they work with. And you're like, oh, man, the way you're telling the story is super offensive. Yeah. But like you have a gay friend at work, like which you would not have had 20 years ago. And it's like, OK, like you're not a great friend yet, but like. <laughs> Maybe, right? It's better that you engage than that you not engage. Yes. I'd rather have a pope who engage, to bring back around, who engages on this stuff and says that and like has this other thing to work on. Well, and by the way, like, no right. one's perfect. No, God knows. Like politically, the, like the way we view things, like no one's got it all figured out. No. We're all prejudiced in some way. Absolutely. Every last one of us. Yeah. We're working it out. 
but uh, yeah, you know, progress but, is incremental. It's okay, you know. Okay, yeah, yeah. doesn't have to happen all at once. I don't think so. What's going to happen when we die? When we die yeah. individually? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's probably it, you know. You think it's I it? I think so. Lights yeah. out. I think so. That's what you came I mean, to. I it would be okay if it wasn't, but I, I don't think that's the case. Would you, you know? be disappointed? If there was something afterwards? I don't know. No, if there wasn't anything. Oh, no. Well, I don't think I'll know. So I think that's probably just what you it is. There will yeah, be yeah, no yeah, such yeah. thing as disappointment. Right, right, right. It won't be, you know. I'm okay with that. I think there's... But you grew up thinking family reunion in Cloud City? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know. That that, that always sounded kind of... I just think I just don't think that holds up. That's well. hell. Yeah, that's right. hell. <laughs> there, Stuck at a family reunion for eternity. There's this uh, the uh, toward the end of Cormac McCarthy's Sunset Limited. Um, I don't know if you've read that or seen the HBO version or anything. The a play of his. Um, these two people are arguing, and one sort of he's the religious man has saved the atheist from killing himself, and they're having this argument. He's still trying to save his life to keep him going, killing himself again. And the atheist is talking about the worst thing would be to know that he would have to see these people again right <laughs> like like yeah and you know i mean i say this like yeah. i say this half joking i mean i love my family but sure. I mean, any kind of social context it's like being stuck at a party for this you know i don't know i just, that to me seems like like wildly uh, obviously um what is it anthropomorphic or yeah you know, yeah anthropomorphizing no, right, right, right. the afterlife and like it's very very much just like wish fulfillment yeah uh, I don't have any. I don't have any clue. But I always like to ask people in case they do. I think the last version of it I sort of believed in, and I don't even really know where this came from, um, was sort of this idea that, like, what heaven would be would be like perfect sort of oneness with God, and what hell would be would be total absence, and that earth is sort of like, you're there but not there, you know. And like that kind of made sense to me, just as as a, as a metaphor and a way to think about it. Um, I don't know what that would be like experientially, and. Um, Presumably, you wouldn't be an individual if you had either of those experiences. So, yeah. or maybe you'd be totally an individual in hell. No, see, um, I don't think there's anything. Yeah. I mean, my thinking right now, I don't yeah. think there is any individual. I think the individual. I think individuality is an illusion. Like there's like that. Like there's like the practical level or the um, conventional level of reality where there's like you and me and like sure, yeah, yeah, we yeah, can yeah, function yeah. as like independent humans. Right. But like ultimately. It's a lot trippier than what we... Uh, oh, probably, yeah. But you can only perceive it the way you perceive it, right? You can only so, perceive it the way you can perceive good. it. This is good. Ever, you know, we're sitting here completely sober, getting very stoned. <laughs> I think this is this is good. I haven't slept in three months. Yeah, right, how, that's how, right, right. We're, just, we're using your baby high to get philosophical, <laughs> so it's good. I've been doing this a lot with people. I'm curious right. about these questions. Does it, do the questions feel more pressing to you because you have kids? No, I'm obsessed with it yeah, just as a human yeah, being. Yeah. Um, like to me, there's not much else. Like I like to think about it a lot. Right. Um, as a matter of health. Sure. Yeah. You know, not as a matter like of morbid obsession. Right. Though, I mean, I guess the morbidity is like an element of it. But mm -hmm. like, I just think that like, it's like an eye on the ball type thing for me. Like if you forget to think about this stuff, um, it's very easy to sort of slip off into a mode of existence that is largely filled with static. Yeah. And isn't... Um, real. Yeah, yeah, you know I get that. Saying? Absolutely. So it's just like, oh, okay, yeah, this is impermanent. What's going to happen here? And I think like it's fun to play with those questions. Oh, I agree. You know, like I mean, as, as elusive and slippery as it all can be, I don't think that's any reason not to try to engage with it. Right. Um, well, I yeah. think that's how it's come out for me in the in the work is sort of um, having lost this sort of system of belief that I was brought up in or, or given up. Lost isn't probably the right word. Um, Rejected. What do you replace that with? What do you do instead? Yeah. And I think one of the themes I think of, of Scrapper is sort of um, 
if it, if it buys you nothing to be a good man, it doesn't matter whether you're a good man or a good person, um, and you do it anyway, what's that, right? And or you know, and there's no penalty for being bad. There's no you know these these sort of cosmic rewards are not going to happen. Um, but there seems to me like you know people obviously don't lose those those sort of religious based moral systems and just like run off and become cannibals or something, right? Like you're still sorting that out, and I think. Uh, both my novels are anchored by people who are not believers in that way. Although in some ways Kelly's more of one, I think, than he he admits. But um, but this idea of like I still want to be good, um, but you also lose the uh, in in the way I was brought up, you lose the forgiveness mechanism as well, right? Like the bad things you did are just yours now. And I think like that's I think tough. that's I that's think a that's, tough thing. That to me is so that that's the afterlife. You live on through your actions. Yeah, sure. Like those ripple effects, yeah, good and bad, right? That's your legacy. Yeah, it's probably true. Every moment, I, you know, I had a, I uh, studied with a writer who talked a lot about um, that one of the on, the only ways that you could do something that would that you would sort of live on in a more present way is like uh, is art. That's like one of the ways because f- people are still interacting with your consciousness and they're still interacting Absolutely. with what you saw. And you know, he's like. Um, on a personal level, like you remember so little of even people you really cared about, like twenty years after they passed away. Like if you're like my grandparents died when I was a kid, and I have really specific memories of them. But man, they're small, right? And sure. I think I have an idea. Like memory said, just shrinks. Right, right. And if you said like, "What did your grandfather's voice sound like?" I would tell you I knew, but I don't think I know. Right. Uh-huh. And it's like that's that's gone in a certain way. For me, you know, my dad probably has a much fuller of that. But there will be a time, a hundred years from now, when no one knows, no one remembers, and no one thinks about you or me, and that's a weird thing. Until they listen to this podcast. Right, I know, absolutely. <laughs> some some this is how I'm hologram <laughs> arc going through the cosmos after the Earth is destroyed. People will be like, oh yeah, those Just guys, a, on the hard they drive. had no idea how the world was going to end. A hard yeah, drive totally spinning wrong. at the outer reaches of the Milky Way. Absolutely, it'll be in the... The USS Vatican flying <laughs> through the solar system. Uh, that's interesting, though. It's interesting to think about. And I think, like, um, if we agree that you live on through your actions, and that's really kind of like your afterlife or your mm-hmm. legacy, like, I can't think of a richer way to build a legacy than through literature. And I know that might sound self-congratulatory, sure. but I mean, like, really and truly, like, right. in terms of, like, laying down your innards. right. And, uh, you know, uh, packaging them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> for consumption, you know, like what, how better to do it? I mean, and really, I mean, a full expression of them too, I think. So one of the things I love about writing is the way that, and reading is the way that like a book feels like it was written by, um, by like a superhuman because the, the man or the woman who wrote the book worked on it, not one day, but like a thousand days. And George Saunders uses this this verb manifest in an interview I saw of him once that I like a lot. But the idea of like manifesting upon the page, and like the the person you are each of those days you worked in the book did something to it and changed it in some ways. And so like every book is autobiographical, right? Like every book is sort of this record of like the thousand people you were while you were writing it. And there's something really interesting about that that a novel ends up whatever it's about, however close it is to you in content is this like slice of your consciousness over the years that you worked on it oh, you know, for sure. yeah and that's so fascinating and weird to go back to right and you sort of um i get really used you know I, I don't tend to read like lots of different parts of a novel so uh you get really used to like the parts you see all the time 
and you forget all the things that you felt or thought or were, were working through in the other parts of the book. So when you work, you go, yeah. let's say you start, you, know, you, you start writing and you write your way to like page 150. Yeah. When you sit down the next day, you just start at 150. Oh God, no, 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 no. Do you no. go back and read, reread, and like? Uh, I don't write in order, really. So I'm, I write a lot of fragments and sort of nonlinear, and I'm just sort of piling up all these little moments and trying to figure out where they go. And I'm not much of a planner. Um, I plan later. I, I I do outlines between drafts, like as plans for the next draft. But I don't plan the first draft very much. Um, the scrapper revolves around a um, uh, child abduction that I didn't know was happening until like. He was like finding the boy. I was like, "Oh, you, you don't have kids, do you?" No, no. So you're not working on any kind of like parent fear. I don't know. I mean, I've written like three books in a row that somehow end up being about like marriage or fatherhood. Or you're gonna have or, a kid? You thinking about it? No, I, we're not planning to have any kids. So, um, I mean, you know, you never know. But uh, I think, I think for me, it's just that a lot. You know, a lot of what I, I think, a lot of what I write about is sort of characters who are setting up ways of life or systems or, or some mode in which to prevent losses that they're afraid of right they're trying to they're trying to like buttress themselves against loss loss won't happen if i can make the world like this and i think that's part of the reason that so much stuff ends up being written about family or parenthood or marriage because like those are the things you're afraid to lose right sure lose lose everything but that you know right and so i think it's just looking for the things that like will cost the most or mean the most right like right if i wrote a book about a guy who like really didn't want to lose his job at like taco bell or something i like i, I the stakes went behind enough to maintain me although you know I, I've, I've had a fast food job i didn't want to lose i mean i, I mean like that was a, a thing i worried about at some point in my life i guess but um but yeah like to to lose my wife that that fear is so humongous and i can that can power me for a book you know um, which is, I guess, a weird thing. I, I don't know if I've ever talked to her about that. Like the idea that I'm going to spend like three to four hours a day, every day, accessing the part of me that's like terrified of losing <laughs> you. That would be totally an okay thing to do between breakfast and lunch. Every but day. you know, that's the set that gets at the same thing we were talking about earlier with respect to my little, like, you know, obsession with death and yeah, confronting yeah. that. It's the same thing. Right. You're spending time confronting it. Yep. Absolutely. It actually, it actually, uh, lessens its power over yeah. you. You know, if to, to actually, you know, the way you got to go through it. Mm-hmm. You can't go around it. You can't ignore it. I'm doing an event tonight at Skylight uh, with, uh, with Amelia Gray, and she, she said something in an interview at HTML Giant years ago that I, I think about a lot where she talks about writing for her not being escapist. So if she wanted to escape, she just put her thoughts in a journal. You know, like writing's a way to like rub your face in it. It's like to get closer, you know? And, and I think that's what it is for me, too, that I, I want to... You're, and it's just a weird thing because you're making up this, this uh, fictional world as a tool to get closer to your life and your emotions and to your thoughts. <laughs> and in, in some ways I think like that's, I, I don't know how many more short stories I'm going to write. I feel like I'm, I, I, at least not right now, I really like the novel. And part of the reason is because it allows me to stay close to something like that for a long time and to keep getting closer to that incremental sort of approach. Even when it's right? painful. Yeah, absolutely. You Maybe like especially. It. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think I, um, you ever lost anybody? I mean, you've lost grandparents sure, and stuff. Yeah. But I mean, like, if, if loss is a, a theme for you and you're spending time, like, you know, considering this and kind of trying to grapple with that fear and, um, you know, like, have you lost people close to you? Yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've lost friends. I lost a, an uncle a couple of years ago that I was really close with. Um, um, I've lost, uh, already not being a teacher very long, I've lost a, a student that, that affected me kind of weirdly. Um, I, it was just a strange thing. Uh, like an illness? 
Uh, no, a, a student who um, uh, took her own life, um, which is very, which is, you know, and it, you know, really has nothing to do with me, right? Like, it's just, it's totally outside. It was still, like, a very strange thing, like, this person that I had, I had spent a lot of time with and who, whose work I cared a lot about. Um, uh, friends, you know, I mean, I think you're, there's been maybe more of that than I'd like and not as much as other people have had to deal with, you know? Wait, like, friends dying in accidents or... Yeah, and I think... Um, uh, or illness in different ways, and uh, and I yeah, and I think my my family had like a that sort of those blocks where like my grandparents all died in a really short period of time, and you have that that place where your family feels very fragile in a certain way. Um, my uh, my parents are both alive, but had they, and they both come through marvelously through like their first like big health scare in the last couple of years, right? They're both totally fine, and maybe in the best shape of their life, but they had that like yeah. first big thing for both of them. Sure. Um, yeah, I think some of that stuff, I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that it's, it's a weird thing because I think one of the things that I, I find distasteful about myself, and I think this maybe is common for writers and, and readers and people who are art people and maybe why we're art people is sometimes in those moments, I feel like I don't access that emotion as fully as I'd like to, you know, you're sitting at a funeral and you're like, I should feel this more than I'm feeling. You're it. like at a remove. You're almost, yeah. you're almost observing yourself observing or. Yeah, right. You're too aware of something or your, your, the expectations a burden or you're just, you're just, I think sometimes things feel abstract to me that shouldn't. And I think, uh, and then in like a book, uh, that you're reading, you're like bawling, you're in a movie bawling. <laughs> it's the same situation. I can't um, even do that. Right. Um, yeah. But I'm dead inside. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I noticed that about you, but I didn't want to say anything. I'm glad you're coming to it. Self-awareness is important. Um, don't tell your wife or kids. Uh, I think, um, but I think some of that's also because art, I feel like, has prepared me for emotional experiences too. You yes, know? Um, I remember when my my dad retired a couple of years ago, and and he he kind of got bought. He was a computer programmer for a chemical company, and really liked it. He was very good at it, and he got retired, got bought out a little earlier, a couple of years earlier. We might have wanted to, very close though, and and not a financial burden. He's totally fine financially, um, but I think immediately had that thing where like oh like most of the people you've been friends with that work for 30 years like you're just never going to talk to them again like they're yeah. not like, they're just going to keep someone else is going to do your job and it's just going to like like that right right the next week and you have that realization and it makes you feel weird about what you did and all this stuff and i don't want to put words in his mouth but i remember having a conversation with him about that and feeling like I already knew all about this. Like I, you know what I mean? Like I learned about it in books and I'm sure I'll feel it when it's my turn too, but I was also prepared for that in a certain way. That's a really um, good point. Yeah. When you read about weird... other people's experiences, uh -huh. you get, uh, it gives you preparation. You practice. Yeah. yeah. You get ready. I think it's, that's a weird, I don't read for that reason, but I think it's definitely happening. Sure. Yeah. Uh, how yeah. many more cities you got? Uh, where am I? I'm in Seattle tomorrow. Next week, I'm in New York for a couple of days, and then in um, uh, Atlanta and Austin. And then I've got like a weird trip where I'm in um, uh, San Francisco, Madison, Wisconsin, Boston, and somewhere else in that trip. It's this weird ping pongy sort of like I, I I have one day where I think I'm in a, I think I'm going to be in Wisconsin for like. 11 hours or something like, it's weird like I'm just gonna and it's a great place you know I love Wisconsin but it's gonna be a very 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 short last Midwest yeah, like, yeah. it's good so I think I'm do you like this part of it 
Oh, yeah, I think so. I think this last time I wasn't teaching at the same time, and so I've been popping home, teaching two classes, and popping out. And that's been tiring, but it's good, right? I mean, you're, it, you're you flying know, around, high class talking problems. about your stuff. Right, exactly. I mean, it almost feels impossible to complain about anyway. Um, I think I'm doing better this time. Even going home and having to teach is, is uh, more difficult, but I, I'm, it's restoring my sort of being in the worldness and my humanity and seeing my wife is good. Last time I did 25 events in 21 cities in six weeks. I was only home four days. And so I spent a lot, and they were all like my events. They weren't like um, shared readings or book festivals. It was like, it was just me. And I think I got a little internal and weird. And I only had thoughts about like airplanes and hotels and like bars. Like I like, <laughs> couldn't have a conversation. You know, I had no idea what was happening in the world. We couldn't yeah. have this Pope talk. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have thoughts about death. I'd be like, right. death reminds me of airports. <laughs> like, <laughs> but that was so uninteresting. I would be in the shower and I'd be like, Maybe I'll write a story about an airplane. I was just like, it was so bad. Right, I, mean, right. I was, I was the narrowest human being. And so I think this time has been better for that. I've been better. But um, but yeah, I think uh, it's it's great. And it's fun. And I, I like doing events. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity to. And uh, I mean, you know this. I think that there's this phase where I finished the book a while back now. And so... I'm halfway into the next thing and so you're in this sort of weird place with it and it's new to other people um, but mostly people haven't read it yet at the things it's just in this really special sort of phase um, where it feels kind of uh, all potential and it's fun Let, I, let's keep it there right yeah yeah right <laughs> uh, but it's good uh, yeah and people are are really generous with it and are engaging with it really well well I'm glad that. we got to ch- uh, to shine a little light on it with the uh, the Nervous Breakdown book club absolutely yeah I appreciate it. and that. I appreciate you taking the time you just got off of a plane you yeah, drove here good. now you're going to Skylight yeah you're doing the tour it's awesome I think last time I landed in LA for book tour I had uh, one of my shoes got broken by a security machine in Seattle, and so I had I, I was like limping around the city trying to buy shoes at like 10 p.m. at night. <laughs> See, uh, you're you know, already doing better. It's already doing better. This is so so good compared to that. So well, thank you so much. Yeah, absolute pleasure talking with you. Best Thanks. of luck with everything. Thanks, Brad. Appreciate it. Okay, there we go, guys. Matt Bell. His novel is called Scrapper. Available now from Soho Press. Go get it. Get yourself a copy of Scrapper. It's a fun book title to say. Scrapper. You can find Matt Bell online at mattbell.com, and he's also on the Twitter. His handle over there is at mdbell79, at mdbell79 on the Twitter. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget about the app, the Other People app. Go get that, sign up for premium, support the show. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. So I'm going to uh, going to go leave and eat some Ethiopian food. I'm hungry. I didn't eat lunch. I almost never eat lunch. I forget to. I get caught up. I don't have time. Is that sad? No time for lunch. I don't miss it that much. I don't miss lunch. I like breakfast. I like dinner. I need to eat less for dinner, though. I have Because I don't eat lunch, I have a huge dinner. That could be problematic. I'm sure that's not good for me. Do you really need three square meals a day? I don't know about that. I question that. It's because I'm a writer. I question things. Please remember that Somerset Maugham died of a stroke and that William Saroyan 
died of prostate cancer. That's it for now. Thanks to uh, Matt Bell. Go get Scrapper. Thanks to Soho Press uh, for being a part of the TNB Book Club. Very pleased with that. And thanks to you guys for listening. I, uh, I always appreciate that. Hope you know it. I'll be back again next week with another conversation with another person involved in the literary arts. The narrative arts. Another uh, person who deals in words. I'll have them on this program. We'll discuss things. We'll be unprepared. Be improvised. Tangential. Everything you've come to expect from this uh, program. Consistently delivering a disorganized mess for your enjoyment. Injera bread. It's kind of fun. Eat with your fingers. I guess that's cool. But then I feel sort of annoyed by myself. There's something sort of annoying about white people being like, oh, let's go. It's, ooh, it's Ethiopian food. And we eat with our finger. There's going to be something sort of yuppie and annoying about that. I don't know if I have uh, put my finger on it. No pun intended. You know what I'm saying? It's very Boulder, Colorado. Here's what's annoying. It's the, uh, it's the annoying, like, uh, expression of familiarity. Like, well, yeah, we eat, we, you know, we eat Ethiopian food all the time. You're from Connecticut, dude. It's fine. I mean, eat the Ethiopian food. That's wonderful. But just, like, calm down about knowing about the bread. Or, like, pronouncing it like, like with, with, like, an Ethiopian accent. That bugs the shit out of me when people correct you when you say a, a word from a, another language and you, they pronounce it for you in French or whatever. Just to like make sure you know that they speak French and they're culturally sophisticated. Mon Dieu. Merde. <laughs>